Mike uh, just has such such a heart of gold. I I um I so appreciate uh, how he he's passionate. He listens to the spirit, and um, I just love his realness. Mike's just real. What you see is what you get, and that's a really good thing. So there's a whole lot more I could say, but I would rather turn it over to him. He's gonna he's gonna preach for a kind of a predetermined length that I gave him, and then we're gonna I'm gonna come up and and talk about Roger for a moment. But Mike. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting us into your home. Thank you that, um, thank you for how our hearts have been connected. And I just love that we're cheering each other on and celebrating each other. And would you open your hearts to the Holy Spirit, but through Mike Barris? About 10 days ago, I was in Southern California and uh, was with 1,100 other pastors and elders and leaders of the church who were gathering as part of a new movement of uh, really asking the question, what is Jesus up to? Where is Jesus going? And how can we get involved? And we worship for three days straight. Uh, these folks from all over the country, uh, from different faith traditions, uh, mostly Presbyterian, but from some others as well, and uh, we, we worshiped in different styles and in different ways. To come here tonight to Blazing Fire and to worship with you and enjoy the goodness of God with you in worship is just an absolute privilege and an extension of that previous experience because the church worldwide worships the living Lord Jesus. And wherever we are, it's good to be together. <clears throat> So I thank you. I thank you for the privilege of being here and being with you and for the ongoing journey that we're all on. And uh, it's all I can say about these two guys is I love them. Uh, my life is much richer and deeper, and I've learned so much from the two of them, and that's enough. I want to go on to you. Uh, Brent, said, uh, Brent said, you know, why don't you come and, and talk about what you're passionate about? And uh, at first I thought he was just saying, you know, Go talk, give him a give him a pep talk and whatnot. And he, he of course meant preach, and he did give me a time limit. And I'm watching the clock. <clears throat> but can I tell you, one of the things I'm passionate about is this book <laughs> and what it is, which is the Word of God. And as a result of that, I want to give you a word, and I want us to be challenged by God's word for a couple of moments. And I pray that out of that, you'll get some of my passion too, and we might be able to share that. Uh, I was thinking about a text, and, and I didn't do this preparation the way I normally do because I want to be free, just what you all were talking about. And, uh, and I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to preach this? Uh, what do you want me to share? And God brought me to a text that I'd actually been given for our church not too long ago as well. Uh, we're seeking to be a church that proclaims the gracious love of Jesus and leads people into the Jesus way of life. And, and we want to do what God wants us to do. And this text came to mind. And I want to read first just something that's for tonight. I, I didn't have this for my congregation, but I have it for you. Isaiah 43.1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob... He who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, blazing fire. You 
are mine. Do not ever forget, no matter what you're going through, whatever uh, the opportunities, whatever the challenges, whether the uh, future is uncertain or not, do not forget you have been redeemed and set free. He knows you by name. You are His, and we all are, and we praise God for that. The text goes on. God is giving a word to the Israelites. They've uh, been taken into captivity because of their sinfulness. There's been judgment upon them. And God's saying, now I'm going to do this redemption work. I'm going to show you what redemption looks like in your situation. I'm going to bring you back. And in Isaiah 43, 14, he begins to do this new thing. He talks about it and he basically makes a declaration and then he asks a question. And I think the declaration is equally for us and the question is equally for us as well. If you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah 43, beginning at 14, and uh, we'll take a look at this. The word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then skip down to 15. I am the Lord. Your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished and snuffed out like a wit. What's He talking about? Deliverance of the Israelites, right? Across the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. The God who delivered them out of Egypt, who got them out of captivity, who crushed Pharaoh's army and chariots and all of his might, that God says, I am your Holy One, your King. And then he says these startling words, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. This is God talking, and He's just declared the victory that He's given to the Israelites, the thing that they've celebrated throughout their life together. The thing that they proclaim, God's our God, He's the one that brought us to the promise, and He's done all these things for us. And then God says, forget about all that stuff. Forget about it. It's kind of like God winning the Super Bowl, and He gets the Vince Lombardi trophy, and instead of putting it on the shelf, He's like, Eh, whatever, I'm moving on. And sometimes for you and for me, we can latch on to a memory we're called to remember, we're called to, to understand what God has done for us, but God does not want us to recall and stay in that one place of recollection. Forget the former things. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. Why does God say that? Very next phrase. See, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing something brand new. I, your God, I, your King, am not resting on my laurels. I'm going to do something new. So forget about what has been and look forward to what I'm about to accomplish. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, God says. He's going to deliver Israel out. 
I think the church needs to receive this word for our time. Not just in this place, in this valley, or even in this country, but indeed worldwide. The church needs to hear that God's doing a new thing. We're living in a world that's rapidly changing. There's lots of stuff going on, and you've probably heard it from Pastor Brent or others, but I'll tell it to you. The church is moving into a time of exile in this country, not in other countries. It's been there in other places, but we're moving into a time of exile. We don't have the same kind of place and station and connection in our cities and in our communities as we had before. I'm not lamenting it. I'm just declaring it. It's changing, and you You felt it and you've seen it and it doesn't matter to God because God birthed the church in the first century into a very foreign, dominated, geographical and political situation. Exile was nothing new to the early church. I think we're actually being brought back into a time where we can recall the roots of who we are and how we were formed when the Holy Spirit blew the place apart at Pentecost and people came together and the church was birthed so that God would do a new thing through the power of the Spirit working in people within every single church, in every home, in every geographic region. The church was formed for something new and powerful and different. God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. And I think in our day, we're being called back to be that ancient future church, to know where we've come from, to understand our roots, to be people who don't mind being in exile, out on the margins, not in the center of society, but perhaps on the edge, where we can be still the city on a hill, the place where our lamps are lit, where we can have influence in the city, and it can be a very good thing to be a little bit apart so that you can come back in and interject light and salt and life and grace to a hurting world because the world still hurts. What's happening today in the broader culture and indeed around the world, I believe, is what's always happened. It just happens in different kinds of forms. But people are saying, I want to live in freedom. I'm not talking about us in freedom in Christ. I'm talking about the world. Freedom. Freedom to do whatever I want. Freedom to be whatever I want to be. To take whatever uh, actions I want to take. I just want to be free to live my life my way. And what are they saying to God? Don't bug me. I want to be free of you. I want to be free to do what I want to do. And what we know, don't we, is that in our human sinful nature, we sang about it in one of the songs tonight, we're not free. That's a false freedom. We find our freedom in Jesus Christ. And this world's looking for a freedom in a different place and it's going in a different direction and it may be turning its ears away from us. It may be turning its eyes away, but we nevertheless have the opportunity to be people of light and salt, to be people filled with the grace and power of Jesus, the love of God, the strength of the Holy Spirit and move out into this world and touch a world. So God says, I'm doing a new thing, and I believe he's doing a new thing in our midst. We do not worship a God who stagnates. We do not serve a God who created the universe and then said, that was nice. (laughs) I'm heading out. We serve a God who comes to us in humility in Jesus Christ. 
we celebrated at Christmas. A God who would, as we look forward to Easter, go to the cross and die a criminal's death for you and for me. This God is on the move. He's always been moving. We serve an always active God who in Christ has redeemed us, who has granted us new life, and is even now about His work of drawing people to Himself by grace through faith in His Son, Jesus. And He says, I'm your King. I'm your King. So God has chosen to do His work through the church. And may I say to you and to me, we're an imperfect, motley crew that I don't know why he decided he could work through us, but he's chosen to do it. Can I say that honestly, right? We blow it all the time. Paul said it in Romans 7, we do the things we don't want to do and the things we really want to do, we can't seem to do right. And yet God says, you're, you're my selection. You're my chosen ones. I love you. Go do this. So we imperfect people, including you and me, get called to be the church. And the question is, how do you do it? So one of my passions, besides just declaring that we're in this changing time with all this new activity going on around us with a world, a social setting, a cultural setting that's uh, radically changing with technology that influences us in ways we would have never imagined, with all of that going on, how do we be the people who are the city on the hill? And it comes right back to what it's always been. And I know you know this because I, I listen to your pastor all the time and he influences me. You love Jesus. You be with Jesus. You let Jesus uh, shape your life and form you. And then you go out and live the Jesus way of life in your workplace and where you volunteer and when you parent and when you introduce yourself to your neighbor across the street and all the other places of your life, you live the grace-filled life of Jesus to others. We're called to be Jesus followers in the world and to love Him and abide in Him. And again, I know you know it so that others see it. They just see it and they want it. Now, dear friends, I, I want to encourage you in, in a different kind of way, though. God says, forget the past. I'm doing a new thing. And maybe tonight, maybe here, maybe right now, there's a person or persons in this room who are stuck in the past. Maybe you are in a place where a hurt, a situation, a difficulty, a trial, a season of life, years of your life have placed you in a situation where you don't believe your life is going to change. And you've got to look at this text tonight. You've got to hear the word of the Lord that says to you, no, forget that. I'm doing a new thing and I can do it in your life. And there are some of you in this room who have had a mountaintop experience with Jesus. God's moved into your life and something powerful has happened. And you know what may be happening? You're just thinking about that great experience back there. And God's saying to you, I've got something new for you. Forget that thing. Let's go to that next new mountaintop experience together. And what I'm challenged about in this text then is that my job is to constantly be receiving in the moment and loving and cherishing all that God's doing in my life, but not hanging on to it tightly.
because I don't want to miss the next thing that our good and gracious God is up to, that your heavenly Father wants to do. So for you, whether it's a place that you're coming from challenge or a place of joy and glory, God's still saying, I got something new for you. I want to move in your life. And we're going to be the church when we get that God's always doing this new thing. And there's a challenge. God makes the declaration, but then he asks a question of Israel, and I think he asks a question of us. I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? Do you perceive the new thing I'm doing? Can you hear my small whisper, my delicate voice when I just kind of nudge you to act differently in the office, to cherish and love your spouse in a different kind of way, to pour a word into the life of your child? Do you hear it? Do you perceive it? And I'm challenged because I think it's too easy for me at least. I confess it to get on about the Father's business and then to get so tunnel-visioned in it that I'm not listening or looking or doing anything because I know the path and I'm going to go down that path. (laughs) And God says, do you perceive it? Are you watching? Are you open? Can I tell tell you something new today that you didn't hear yesterday? I don't know where you are. I don't know your life stories, but I know God does. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing is beyond his grasp. Everything is within his power. And his plan for your life, you talked about destiny, is going to be fulfilled. Your job, blazing fire, both individually as followers of Jesus and collectively as the church, is to look, to watch, to be open to the Holy Spirit nudging you in new ways. Do you perceive it? I think something's happening. You've, you've heard it from your own pastor as well. There's new things going on, not just in our individual congregations, not just in this valley. There are, though, cool things. Our pastor's group is beginning to look at new ways in which we as the body of Christ can be linked and formed and be the church of Jesus in this valley. There's cool stuff going on, but it's going on in this tra- in this Bay Area. There's movements like Transforming the Bay for Christ, where churches of all kinds of walks and faith traditions and backgrounds, they're on the move to say, we can do something for Jesus. And we know it's a worldwide movement. And this church is blessed by the ministry and teaching and and uh, the prophets that come through, you're hearing that kind of stuff. And it's happening. In our congregation, there's a growing sense of spiritual conviction that what matters the most is transformed lives. We've been dealing with the building thing and all that stuff too. But that doesn't really matter in God's economy. What matters are transformed lives that reflect the grace and love of Jesus. We, we sense a greater intensity and passion for worship each weekend. And, and I know you know this too, but we have a passion now to work harder. I loved seeing kids come up here and, and dance and be a part of worship. But isn't it important for the church in this day to connect the generations and really pour into the next generation that they be raised as sons and daughters of the King, right? 
So our world's different. And it requires us to hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast in our relationship, to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus, to be seeking the Spirit, to uh, to hang with our core beliefs while adapting to the new realities that every church faces. And God says, I'll do a new thing in you. I'm going to pour out my blessing and my spirit upon the church. And part of my passion is that we would all be able to see that God is not done, that whatever's going on in the society doesn't control or in any way diminish God's plans and purposes to bring people into His forever family, to give them eternal life through the grace that He alone extends in Jesus. I think we're all being positioned individually and collectively to live flourishing lives. And I know you're doing it. I know you're doing it. So church, which is each of you individually and each of your families and all of us collectively, I pray for us that we would be people who are so open and so kind of standing on our tiptoes on the edge of our seat ready to watch and see what God might be doing. And if He's doing a new work in us, it'll happen because He's doing a new work in you. Because you're the church. Right? One last passion and I close. I have a passion for the people of God that we would collectively keep in the forefront of our imagination and our minds the vision of another new thing God's going to do. We know what God has done in Christ. He came humble, born in a manger. He lived a humble life and served. And then He went to the cross and He died in a humility and He died actually in in horror to His followers because it was a criminal's death. He came that way to show us the depth of His love. But don't you know He's saying, I'm going to do a new thing, and what does He promise? He's coming back again, and I want you to have and keep in mind the vision, the vision of Christ's return. You sang about it tonight, and it's what we want. Jesus has been given the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus is going to return and everybody's going to know it's Jesus when He comes back. There will be no mistaking it. So hold on to that vision and let it empower you and strengthen you and give you hope and help you to sustain and endure through whatever you're going through because He's going to return in glory and every knee will bend and every person will bow and every tongue will confess, Lord, it's You. And we've lived faithfully for You. And You can too. So hold fast to that vision. He's coming and He's going to make it right. And what He wants are people who just love Him, abide in Him, and keep on pressing forward with whatever the new thing is. I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? Amen. Thank you.
Wow. I'm I'm just feeling God all over that. Um, uh, wow. Okay. Um, I forgot to say this earlier to you about. I, I feel like su- such the pleasure of the Lord is here tonight, and it, it, it it's always here. But that that Psalm one thirty three, when when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, this is where God commands a blessing. And and uh, it's true for those here in this family. It's true when, when families of families get together, how much more the blessing is. I just feel the Lord's pleasure on it. Like, that was amazing. I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while. I really will. And um, I, I wanted to just stop and, and, and introduce Roger as well. Uh, Roger, you came about eight years ago. Is that about right? So I actually knew Roger before that. He was an uh, associate pastor in Fremont. And I knew him back several years before that, and I always liked this guy. I did. I actually loved his heart long before I really knew him. And uh, and when I'm I'm going to be real serious here. I, Mike, I didn't know because when he came here, I met him, and I'm like, yes, you know, thank you, Jesus. Look who you're bringing into this valley. Roger, I knew ahead of time, and when Valley decided to bring him to this valley, I'm like, cha-ching, baby, we just won the lotto. I did. <laughs> Ask Mike, I did say that. Because Jesus knew what this region needed. And I know it's not been easy for this man, but he has held his ground. He has got so much wisdom and uh, bringing so much life on the hill. And the, and the other thing he's bring, that he really brought to this region is the whole Tri-Valley City Serve, which we're going to hear about more in a couple weeks. Um, but he brought this whole thing about uniting the pastors and churches through serving the nonprofits. There's just brilliance in this guy. And so would you, once again, through the Holy Spirit, open your hearts to Roger Valsi. Hey, I'd um, like to just quickly go through three scriptures together with you. I'm going to um, go over here. I want you to stand with me. I want you to um, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 12. I want to read a, a, a scripture here, but I want to read it in the lens of, and I'm trying to hear from the Holy Spirit if it's either a prophetic word or just a declaration, or it's just me trying to love you guys a lot. So um, Deuteronomy 12.4, you must, you, blazing fire, must not worship the Lord your God in their way. I free you and declare to this house, worship the Lord your God in your way. There is this anointing on this movement that I have been watching, birthed a lot of it out of Toronto and and Bethel and stuff like that. It's a very beautiful way. Don't feel pressure to conform to whatever arms or hands of the church. Worship the Lord your God your way. And then it goes on and says this, but you are to seek the place, Brent. The Lord your God will choose from among the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts, what you have vowed to give in your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. 
there in the presence of the Lord your God and your family shall eat and you shall rejoice in everything you put your hand to. Why? Because the Lord your God has blessed you. So, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we put our hands on this box and we declare and call forth there. Lord, you have spoken that you have ordained a place for us, a place for this church, a place, Lord, for the revival anointing to just be birthed in this valley. And so, Lord, I just call forth that place. No longer a Bedouin, no longer a wanderer, no longer a gypsy, but, Lord, I call forth a place for roots. A place, Lord, where the entire Bay Area, if not the world, will come and draw from. And so, God, I ask this and declare it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. Um, just one other thought, and then I just want to share two texts with you. Um, let me just speak to Brent here. Brent didn't fill in all the details of how we got together in my backyard. Um... Some people share stories and they want to boast. I'm not that person. I invited the Holy Spirit to church and watched hundreds go away. And it broke me. I did whatever I could to try to convince them that the ship wasn't going to ship turnover, that God was still in this house. Um... And I, I was frantic. I was broken. I was lost. I didn't. I never pastored before. But I had this in my heart that if we really were going to fulfill the mandate to reach the city God loves, we need more of the Holy Spirit. Hundreds have left, and I was in a dark place. And so I called the spiritual father of the tribe alley, your pastor. That's why we pray in our backyard. I just couldn't do it any longer. I needed help. He grabbed Mike, and they just listened. They prayed. They cared. They walked with me. They helped me to not give up, to contend for what God has said, and to keep pressing on. That's why we pray in my backyard. It's a very selfish reason. I needed it. I needed your pastor. So I just want to bless this spiritual father, this kingdom thinker, this revival gatherer. Um, whenever I go into a setting, there's something in me that longs to honor uh, honestly. And here's a man, two and a half decades, almost three decades, he's given to this valley. I'm here to partner with you, my friend. I know where spiritual authority is. This man carries it. So it's an honor to be your friend and to carry your bags. Two thoughts, and I want to use a visual here. Um, I want to put this flag. I'll take a flag. I'll take blue because I like blue. By the way, flags make me nervous. I'm an engineer, and I don't know what to do, but how about this? You hold the flag. Um. I want to give two thoughts on how to read the Bible in my whatever minutes I have left, but I want to give a visual here. Your pastor asked me to speak about a passion, but it's a passion, but I feel this far from it. 
I'm here, and I know there's a there, and I want to get there. And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit, would you help me get there? So let me tell you what the two theirs are. Philippians 3.10, open up your Bibles there. The first passion, if you don't mind holding this up just for the next 10 minutes or just if you get tired, <laughs> I want people to, and I want to, I want to actually preach far from it because I want to be there, but I'm going to be honest, I'm here. Paul says some of the most incredible words. Let me just give you these two words, and then here's what I want to synthesize. My proposition to you, the whole Bible can be synthesized in two words, worship and witness. Okay? Now, I, I can say a lot about both of those things, but through two verses, I just want to give you what I'll call a perspective, if not a depth. First one, worship, Philippians 3.10. Paul says the most startling words, I think, in the entire New Testament He says this, I want to know Christ. Now, I want to pause there. Wait a minute, Paul. You've already suffered more than almost any person ever has for the cause of Christ. You've already written two-thirds of the New Testament. You've already traveled the world and established more churches than anyone has ever done. You've sacrificed more. You have wept more. You've put it all on the line. And here you are in the latter stages of your life, and you're saying this. I want to know Christ. When I hear the apostle say that, at that stage in his life, and I'm not going to speak for you, I'm speaking for me, I have nowhere near that much with Paul. And so I say, oh God, if if Paul's still saying, I want to know Christ, what does that say to me about what I don't know about him? You know, I I think there's this tendency in the world today, uh, Brent and I got the opportunity to go to Super Bowl breakfast, and in that room is Tony Dungy and Roger Staubach and Mike Ditka. Now, I could come into this podium today and say, I know Roger Staubach. Or I know Mike Ditka. You know what? Because I had breakfast with him. Now, I'm not going to tell you that 1,600 people were there too. (laughs) But I could give you the impression that I have a new best friend. And then what we do in our modern day is we take out our phones, we take a picture, we put it on Instagram, and we show the world, look at my new friend. But let me tell you this, folks. Here's the reality, and it's an important thought. I know about Mike Ditka. I know about Roger Staubach, but they, I do not know them. And they don't know me. And just because I'm in a room with them, and just because I either get a signature or a picture with them for 30 seconds, does not mean I know anything about them. So if there's a longing or a passion, and we can go so much into this whole thinking. I mean, two stories came to mind. One in Acts 19, remember those seven sons of Sceva? They, try to, they see the Apostle Paul do all these amazing miracles. And then all of a sudden they want to kind of mimic him and they, and then they start mimicking him and the demons attack them. And then the demons preach the best sermon, I think, in all the book of Acts. You know, Jesus we know and Paul we know about. Who are you? There's no knowledge of them in the heavenly realm. In the scariest words written in the whole New Testament, Matthew 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words. Hey, many will say in that day, 
Did we prophesy in your name? Did we dress out demons in your name? Did we do miracles in the name? And he will say, away from me, you evildoers, you lawless ones, some text says. And he says the three most damning words anyone can ever hear. I never, or four, I never knew you. Three words. So I say passion number one. I wake up and pray, Lord, I just want to know you. I don't want to know about you. Um, I don't want to be obligatory. I don't want to be religious. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to project just because I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know more than I really know. Um, and you know what? Um, and I think I heard this declarations. Paul even says in Ephesians, you know, we can go into, the, oh, the depth and the knowledge of the Lord. You know, I mean, who can transcend his depth and his knowledge? And he talks about this height and without. Oh, the reality is this. There's so much more to know. That's fundamentally what worship's about. That's passion number one, I guess. Passion number two, go to the book of Jonah. Um, this is deep in me. I, I don't have time to get into the whole story, but book of Jonah is an unusual book in the whole Old Testament because unlike all the other prophets in the Old Testament, which are about their message, this one's about the man. And um, most people wrongly teach the book of Jonah as a three-act play. Act one, God calls the prophet to go to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because that's the capital of the enemy, the Assyrians. And so he decides that he's going to take a boat, go the opposite way, go to Tarshish, and, you know, kind of flee God. And then, you know, there there's a storm, and then there's a fish, and then he gets, there's lots, and he gets cast over, over into the water, and the, this fish, you know, basically swallows him. That's That's Act 1. Act 2, Jonah is praying inside the belly of the fish. It's, it, and it, it's a horrible prayer. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. There's no, like, I, I'm sorry, Lord. He's, he's really he's upset at God for being in this dilemma. That's act two. Act three, the fish barfs him up on the beach. He goes to Nineveh, and then he preaches the worst sermon in the Bible. There is no love in it. There's no compassion in it. There is no, there's no, you know, they taught me in seminary, you're supposed to connect to your audience. You're supposed to kind of find a way to, you know, understand the text in the way they can. He doesn't try to do anything like that. It's probably the most hellfire brimstone message in the entire Bible. And interesting enough, the results of that sermon and that man are larger than the entire ministry of Jesus and all the disciples. Think about that. And we would think, okay, that's the end of the, of the book. And, and we think at the end of the book, okay, um, and so we think, you know, if we were watching a play, we'd pick up our program, maybe, you know, our popcorn or Diet Coke, get ready to leave, because we thought, wow, that's an interesting play. And I think the moral of the story is, if you're going to sin against God, stay away from water. And, um, and then all of a sudden, the curtain, the lights go dim, the curtains open up, and here's this prophet sitting on a hill. He's looking over the city, and um, I think he, he's probably got his cell phone thinking, I'm going to take some pictures and put on Facebook the God's judgment over this place. Because even though they showed repentance, I still want God to make them burn. 
And as he's waiting for this judgment to come, this heat comes. And all of a sudden, this scorching heat comes, and then a wind comes, and then God allows a vine to grow, and then Jonah's very grateful to God that this vine gives him sh- you know, shade, and he's still waiting for this judgment to come. And then all of a sudden, there's a worm that eats the vine, and then all of a sudden, he's back in the sun, back in the scorching wind, and he basically is so mad at God, he says, God, why don't you just kill me now? And then God says this interesting. It's one of the most literary, most genius moments in the entire scriptures. It's, it goes in, in, and God rebukes the prophet and says, wait a minute. You didn't make the vine grow. You didn't make the worm come. You didn't make any of this happen. You're more concerned about your comforts and preferences. But in that city are 120,000 people that cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. And then he asks this question, a question I still feel so far. He says it to the prophet, should I not be concerned with that great city? That's the end of the play. The lights go on, the curtain closes, and the question is left unanswered. Folks, I believe it's one of the most probing questions in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, cities are not props, they are characters with souls. Abraham intercedes for a city like Sodom. We see, obviously, Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Jeremiah is told, as the city prospers, you're going to prosper. In the New Testament, Jesus talks to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and he talks to these cities as if they have souls, that they are going to have some expectation on Judgment Day. And then when he sees Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul never once writes a letter to a church. He only writes them to cities. Even when we get to the book of Revelation, John himself is not addressing any of the churches by name. He's addressing them by their cities. And even heaven itself is seen as a glorious city. My friends, God is not coming back just for institutions or individuals. He is coming back for cities. I'm just declaring to you now this idea that we can somehow define church by an activity of one meeting and whatever happens on a property is over. I, I, I have to watch it because I can be a little abrasive and I want to be honoring, but the point I'm frustrated with this, most churches do not have a vision beyond their property. And folks, I am not the pastor of Valley Christian Center. I am the pastor over this valley. And there are souls over this valley. And I will have to give an account on Judgment Day on all the efforts and energy of the places. And so I go into the nonprofits and I ask the question nobody's asking, what can I do to help you succeed? I go to the three civic governments and I say, what can I do to help you succeed? I go into the different churches, and I say the same thing. And now I'm even knocking on the business doors. I'm going to Ross, I'm going to Chevron, and I'm saying this. I refuse to believe this lane called church does not have some influence in your place. And so I'm going to their HR departments, I'm going to VPs I know, and I say this. What can the church that bears the name of Jesus do to help you succeed? I do not pastor a church. I do not oversee a meeting. I am here to usher in a movement for this valley. That's what's in my soul. 
Let me just give you this thought on how I, and I hope that this just gives you a thought, and then I want to get out of the way. When you get a group of pastors together, there is this temptation. It's going to happen. This one question is going to come out, and they're going to say, how large is your church? And all the big big churches with the pastors are always going to have a speech on God expects us to be fruitful, and the small churches will have God expects us to be faithful. And then the pastors are, this is a moment for us to boast in our egos, and we always quote our Easter numbers, right? You know? So, let me tell you an experiment I did at Valley Christian. I brought in our accountant one day, and I said, I want to do this. How, how, what is our, our count on Sundays? Okay. Let's take the adult, let's take the children, let's take the live stream. We went through it all. We average on Sundays probably between seven and 800 every week at Valley Christian in our two services. That is what I declare is our come congregation. Every church has a come congregation. It's the weekend experience. In Blazing Fire, I presume this is the meeting. This is your come congregation. But can I leave you this thought? Then I said, now we have seven initiatives into our cities as a church at Valley Christian, I want you to count each one of them. I want to count everything we're doing in the prisons. I want to count everything we're doing in the nonprofits. I want to count everything we're doing in the public schools. I want to count everything we're doing in the hospitals. Everything that we're doing out there, I want to know a count on how many individuals. And I said, the accountant here will make sure that we are not double counting. So we went through each lane. We have about 800 people in our come congregation. We have 2,288 individuals that we meet every week. Because Jesus said go, and I take it very seriously. They will not come to us. They will not step themselves into this room. They don't know how to act in this room. And we try to put something on them that may or may not. So I believe that we have to have a theology of witness. So how do the two connect? Worship Witness. Let me just give you the preposition and get out of the way. It's all over the Bible. Bible's about worship. Bible's about witness. Worship, witness. How does these two? Let me give you what I propose. The conjunction and is too weak. It doesn't really give us enough theological impotence. But what I believe, my thesis statement to you tonight is this, that we witness through worship. What I mean by that is this, the more we fill, the more we have to spill. That somehow our knowing becomes uh, uh, the ability to overcome whatever noise, whatever insecurities, whatever fears, so that there's something to spill out. I believe that the greater worship we have, the greater witness will rise. There is this crazy debate in the church. Well, we're gonna, they're a worship church. They're a witness church. You cannot separate the two activities. They must be connected. And what I'm saying is, let's put the foot on worship so that we can see the blessings of witness. But I will say this, as a Pentecostal my whole life, if you just do worship and it doesn't spill to witness, we are missing a major part of what it means to be Pentecostal. For goodness sakes, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be witnesses where? Not in the building, but in the cities. And so I I hope. I mean, here's where I, I, I just say this. I feel so far in both of these, personally. But the striving 
the direction, the efforts to try to get there, I believe is the most God-ordained path. Some people tell me, Roger, this whole city theology, it's too grand, it's too big. There's no way you're going to see the whole cities come to Christ. The way you preach it, the way you talk about it, the way you witness for it. To which I answer is this, that may or may not be true, but the very pursuit is the most noble thing I can give my life to. I've been doing a lot of crying up here. Um, can you see why we need each other, though, too? I mean, can you see why my life is richer with these two? You know, the old way that the enemy tried to use for so long is keep us apart and judging each other and, you know, feeling insecure. But the more we celebrate each other, man, we just keep adding and adding and adding to each other. And that's what we do in this family, too. We all have different gifts and different stuff. We just keep adding to each other as long as we can celebrate each other. So, man, I love you, too, so much. This is This was so good. Thank you. Thank you.